He's got connections. From actors and athletes to comedians and world-class musicians. Andy Hall. His contact list is jam-packed with some of the most recognizable names in entertainment. Andy Hall's giving Laser Hellraisers his plus one. An exclusive conversation you won't hear anywhere else. On today's edition of Hall Access. Nearly 25 years of doing this for a living, and up to now, I'd never had the chance to talk to Smashing Pumpkins frontman Billy Corgan. Been to several of his shows over time, but oddly, our paths never crossed like they're about to. Billy, it's an honor to share the airwaves with you today. Thanks for your time, man. Oh, I'm happy to talk. Thank you so much. We're excited for Tuesday and the release of Atum Act One, the first of a three-part rock opera featuring 33 new songs and serving as a sequel to Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness and Machina, the Machines of God. Have we got this so far? You're I'm, 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 you're right on point. It's like a, it's a heaven, marketing heaven. <laughs> Act two is coming January 31, Act three, April 23, along with a box set containing all three acts, along with a group of 10 additional exclusive songs and self-produced too. It sounds like a massive undertaking, Billy. It was. I started writing it probably over four years ago as far as the concepts. And then during the pandemic, I, I think I spent about two years worth of work to put it all together. So yeah, 43 songs worth of work. It's interesting, but um, it feels great because, you know, I think it's going to revitalize the band from within. When James came back to the band, there was all the obvious stuff of like, well, let's go out and tour and people want to see us play. But behind the scenes, I kept saying, you know, what does the musical part kick back in the way we used to do it? And so I think this is the first time we've really been able to kind of focus on that level, which has been great. When did it occur to you that the characters and concepts introduced on Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness could actually extend further than the double album that you put out in 95? Well, I toyed with the concept on Machinas 2000, but I also knew that's when the band was breaking up. So in my mind, it was kind of like, okay, that the character dies there with me, you know, or, or with the band. Um, we certainly, you know, explored the bringing the band back. Even when we were breaking up, we talked about, well, what, what would happen if we ever wanted to get back together? But certainly the idea of doing another conceptual work, especially with how long it takes and stuff like that, I didn't think it would ever happen. But somehow it was kind of a perfect storm between, you know, being stuck inside like everybody was with the pandemic and then kind of having this idea in the back of my head. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go ahead and do it now. You know, I find it interesting that the number 33 keeps popping up. There's the song on Melancholy, as I alluded to in terms of a tomb, 33 songs over the three acts. I even went so far as to count the number of tour dates on your current run, which, by the way, came out just short at 32. Um, Is there a significance there that up to now I hadn't seen or heard explained, or is it just a fun coincidence? No, when I wrote the song 33 around 94, people asked me what it meant, and I kind of jokingly said, well, it's, you know, it's the speed of a record, and it's also the, the age that Jesus died at. Um, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a direct illusion, but, you know, it's interesting when you write songs, people want you to attach meanings that maybe you didn't have when you wrote them. So now that I've experienced that for years, I kind of do things like that just to have a little bit of fun. Um, there, there are definitely times where I thought this album probably could be 30 and I'd be just as happy. But I, I set my mind on 33 and I got to 33. That brings up an interesting question, too. Over the course of time, for you personally, do songs take on different meanings as life goes on and you grow and, and get older and mature? Absolutely. I mean, there are songs that I didn't think much of at the time when we wrote them. I mean, I liked them, but I wasn't in love with them that I love now. And there's other songs that I thought were the greatest thing I'd ever done. And I look back and I go, eh, I probably could have done better. Hmm. So it's just very funny. Um, 
time does change your perspective on things, for sure. Yeah. Tell me about the creative process for a tum. From what I have read, it was the COVID pause that allowed you the time to dedicate to the writing of the songs, even as you you were working on your last studio album, Seer, at the same time, or about the same time. Were the two being worked on simultaneously? No, we had finished Seer, and I think right about the time we finished Seer is when the pandemic, you started hearing about the pandemic, and I think that it got weird because then when we were putting out this year album, then it was the whole thing where you couldn't make videos together and all those kind of restrictive times. So um, I think Sear was finished just before the pandemic. So, but it probably seemed like it was part of the pandemic because it started coming out during it. Yeah. Is it, I mean, fair to say, obviously this has been a prolific few years, uh, you know, considering 20 songs on Sear, 33 over three acts of a tomb. Have song ideas always come in tidal waves like that for you, or have there been the proverbial peaks and valleys where that's concerned? No, more so like the tidal wave thing. It's it's weird. I'll get to a point where I just think, I have nothing else to say. I'm, I'm done. You know, it's time to go do something else. And then something will happen. Um, I don't know if it was having children late in life. I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, a very stable home life, probably for the first time in my life since the early 2000s. So I think all those things kind of came together where I felt confident to take a chance. And it's interesting because there's different versions of taking a chance. When we took chances in our 20s, people told us we were insane because it was bad for our career. Mm. And a lot of those chances we took ended up paying off. So it's weird when you're in your 50s, then people say, oh, this is a bad idea, too. And you're kind of like, well, how is that a bad idea? Well, people don't listen to music like they used to. And I think that's such a weird argument. It's like it's like saying to a clown, don't be funny, you know? I mean, musicians should make music. And and there are bands out there that basically play their, their old songs, and I'm totally cool with that. I go see those shows, too. But for us as a band, I think the band's always been at its best when we're making new music, we're, we're, we're exploring what it means to be in the band, and then by extension, we're playing that new music uh, in the public and getting some kind of you know, new feedback. I think that's sort of where we're at our best internally. It would be hard to explain what that means, but it just feels like it's the healthier version of the band. I, I, I can never imagine a, a state where the band would just strictly be a catalog yeah. band or a heritage band, to use the, the industry term. Sure. Where you're just resting on your laurels. You'd rather continue to create as long as you've got something to say. It seems weird that you have this incredible opportunity, this incredible platform, and now with streaming, you can literally reach everybody for very low economy because most people have some streaming accounts. So you're not asking them the old school thing of like, hey, go to the record store, buy the record, and make that commitment. It's a different level of commitment. So to me, the argument against putting out more music has never been uh, more weak. This should be a time where everybody should be making more music, because what's the downside? Yeah, I've heard those conversations had about music videos, too, and how much they used to cost versus what they cost now. Yeah, well, we, that's why, like, our first video for this album, we just did a live video to TikTok. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, we made that same analysis was like, if, if people aren't going to watch it like they used to, well, then let's just, let's just have fun and maybe we'll catch a little bit of fire here. And we actually did. And TikTok was really helpful in that. And we made a really fun video. And what was light, nice about it is we didn't spend a bunch of money. And then people were writing me saying, this reminds me of the kind of stuff that you guys used to do, where you just kind of have a laugh and jump in with both feet. And if it worked, it worked. I think that's what I'm trying to say in so many words. I think the band does better when we're not getting too wrapped up in the legacy and the shadow of the past and just just we just make music and just do 
goofy stuff, and some works and some doesn't. That's okay. Smashing Pumpkins frontman Billy Corgan is my guest. Atum, a rock opera in three acts, is being released methodically over the next several months. Interestingly, the collection's first single, which you alluded to, Beguiled, comes from Act 2, which we don't get until the tail end of January. Why is that, and have future singles been chosen without any regard to the sequencing of the releases? Yeah, that was something that got discussed very early on when when we had the album done. People were worried if I was going to be, you know, restrictive about what I would release. And I was like, no, just pick the best song. Hmm. You know, if, if, if all anybody does is come in contact with our new single and they like it and it makes them want to come see us play, I'm cool with that. I know a 33 songs in the album is not for everybody, but that's the, sort of the whole point. It's like you don't get attached to outcome and then magical things can happen. I love the rock opera concept. I think it was probably the who that sort of got me interested in the idea of a narrative running through a collection of songs. Probably Quadrophenia, come to think of it, because I don't think I was cool enough to have been a part of Bowie's Ziggy Stardust at that time, but uh, were you inspired by any of those albums in particular growing up, Billy? Oh, yeah, and uh, especially The Wall. Mm. Um, Even when Melancholy came out in 95, I said, you know, it has a lot to do with The Wall, not that we're ripping The Wall off, but it's just the audacity of doing something so crazy. Um, I feel very inspired by that. I think it's a cool thing. Like, why not push the boundaries and see what you're capable of? And certainly some of the greatest Pink Floyd music was made when they, they, made, they made the transition from kind of a hazy psychedelic band. And obviously Dark Side of the Moon was the, the, you know, the, the high point of all that mm. in terms of success. And here they are only a few years later doing this crazy concept record, which involves Nazis and The Wall and... When I heard it when I was a kid, I was like, this is way too weird. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. But I came back to it again and again and again and again. And then I saw Roger stage it uh, probably about five, seven years ago in Los Angeles. And I was just blown away by how he updated the context and the themes of the record to a modern audience. So people like Roger have been very inspiring to me to say, why does, why does the band have to be anything but what you want it to be? Um, growing up in the 90s with MTV we, you know, we, and, and indie culture and alternative culture, we were told constantly, you can't do this, you can't do this, you should do this, you know, and we were always just sort of confused by that. So we definitely don't have any excuse now. There's no one to point a finger at. I mean, we're a band after 34 years, and we're playing and we're making new music, and so if, it, if it's great, if that's on us, and if it's not great, well, that's on us too. It's nobody's fault. You know, no one, no one can stop us. We certainly have the means and resources to do whatever we want to do musically. There's no big bad record company guy standing there saying, wagging his finger saying, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very much our attitude. Like, let's just keep pushing. You know, a lot of those bands back then, including Pink Floyd, The Wall became a film. And I always thought with the visual aspect of melancholy and the infinite sadness specifically, that that might have translated really well if you had the time and the resources to do it. That might have turned out really interesting, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, MTV offered us a lot of money to make a film, and for whatever reason, we turned it down. So that's one of those coulda, woulda, shoulda. Yeah. I alluded to the tour you're currently on with Jane's Addiction. Do you think there will come a time that you'll perform a Tums three acts in their entirety someday? I really want to. And my my vision for it would be that um, because there's different characters singing, um, I wouldn't sing every song like I do on the Pumpkins version of the album. So we would stage it with different vocalists, maybe five to six different singers. So it would be cool to, you know, I always use Gerard because I'm friendly with Gerard, Chemical Romance, but it'd be cool if Gerard was in the touring cast for a few weeks, and then we, we did a version of a particular song with Gerard singing, and we voiced it more for Gerard, or it changed the key, or changed the interpretation for Gerard. That would be really fascinating, I think. You mentioned you have kids, uh, ages six and four, still pretty young, but I think by that age you're starting to see a little bit of yourself in them at this point, aren't you? 
Oh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's scary. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I know where it all goes. Yes. <laughs> I've got a 12, a 9, and a 7 at home, so I can kind of identify with what you're going through right now, and it's really a trip sometimes to think to myself, you know, being that age and now looking back, and was I really this bad? <laughs> yeah. God bless. I love it. Look, that's what's so wonderful, uh, you know, I'm not out here waving the flag for anything, but I will say that, you know, Gen X had a very strong start and made a huge impact upon the world, particularly musically. And um, I don't see why that journey has to be over. You know, Frank Sinatra made some of his greatest music, you know, in his later years. And I, I feel the same way about us. Like, why can't we make our greatest music in our later years? There's no restriction on that. I realize that's not the historical precedent. And I understand people's cynicism, but I don't feel that way. Nor do I. I'm, I'm happy you're still out there doing what you love, man. You know? It's called alternative rock for a reason. You know what I mean? I, I, we didn't want to be like all the other kids. We wanted to be different. And it's a weird thing to be an alternative rock, and then you find out there's rules for alternative rock, too. Wanting to be different and then finding out just how many of us are out there that are just like you. I don't know. I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I really appreciate you taking the time for us today, Billy. I've always been a fan, and, and still, List, one of your shows is one of my all-time favorites. I've seen a lot of shows, but for me, it was the block party in my hometown of Minneapolis in the summer of 1998. Over 100,000 people in attendance, and I was lucky enough to have been one of them. I hate to correct you. It was 220,000 people. Wow. I, I don't hate that you corrected me at all. <laughs> they gave, somebody gave me a, a picture from the Minneapolis Star Tribune, I think it is. Yep. They took an aerial shot from a helicopter. It's 220,000 people. It's insane. God. Still a great memory. Last but not least, I, and I'm not even sure how this became a story, but the world is actually taking bets as to what you were snacking on mid-set at a recent show in Milwaukee. Have you heard about this? I have heard about this. This is kind of a funny. This is the world we live in, right? Yes. I, I do all this stuff, and then it's about what I'm eating on stage. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so I got people banging my door down once they found out I was talking to you, and everybody wants to know what you were eating up there. Well, I, 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 I'll, give, I'll give you one answer, and I'll create a new clue. So they are potato chips, but I cannot tell you what kind of potato chips they are. Okay. <laughs> Billy, a lot of fun, man. Thank you so much for your time. Looking forward to a tomb. Act 1 comes on Tuesday. Acts 2 and 3 are coming in 2023. We're more than happy to have you here and, and out doing your thing, my man. Thank you, my friend.